Welcome again to Tell Me How. I'm your host, Rumina Slam. This is the second part of our two-part final episode. In the first part, we address topics relating to digital technology and infrastructure and the energy transition. In this part, I focus on three topics, the climate crisis, transport connectivity for development, and public-private partnerships. Let me start with the climate crisis. There are a number of models predicting global warming caused by human activity, and there are just as many models estimating associated losses, economic or other. The estimates from these models differ widely and are subject to much uncertainty for a number of reasons. For example, policy responses and the impacts of policy. Adaptation, including behavioral ones to changes in habitat. Uncertainty regarding population growth, as well as temperature increase, are just some of the reasons. Professor Charles Colstead says in this regard. For instance, we don't have a good understanding of how economies might respond to, let's say, a a carbon charge, $50 a ton carbon charge, just as an example. Will the extra burden significantly disrupt societies and economies? Something like we've experienced with COVID, which sort of hit us all unexpectedly. Or will creativity, innovation, and adaptation kick in as people, individuals, and companies adapt, uh, reducing the size of the burden and move away from carbon emissions to save on climate change charges? Despite all these uncertainties, there is recognition that something must be done. For example, that carbon must be taxed. Economies need to be restructured, some faster than others. And there are proposals for global measures as well as national ones. Let's hear Professor Robert Pindyke on this point. Well, look, you know, you could have a harmonized tax and still have side payments. In other words, let's suppose you have a country that, you know, for whatever reason, it would be very difficult for them to impose the tax. And I'll, in a moment, I can tell you why actually there are advantages that make a, a harmonized tax politically attractive. But you might have a country that would find it very difficult. You could have side payments. You could have a international agreement where part of the harmonized tax involves a transfer of money from rich countries to poor countries. That can still happen. So uh, it doesn't mean that we are forcing every country to follow the same path. We can use these side payments to make it easier for less well-to-do countries. In the race to slow global warming, recently increasing attention has been placed on methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Methane comes from many sources, wetlands, agricultural activity, oil and gas fields, and coal mines. Methane emissions from many of these sources, such as oil and gas fields and coal mines, can be mitigated today at no net cost. This is because methane can be captured and sold. But the precise solution will have to be customized to the country context. Let's have a listen to expert Alyssa Ocker. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that directly addressing methane emissions from oil and gas, even if we were to aggressively wean ourselves off of oil and gas, 
we would get a lot more climate benefits faster and more efficiently by plugging these leaks, even if we aggressively decarbonize the energy grid. One particular example is that there's much greater potential to reduce methane from landfills and wastewater in developing countries than countries like the U.S. because in the U.S. we're already deploying a lot of this technology. There is a large diversity in systems and practices across world regions, so it's hard to just apply one solution across the board. Um, there are cultural differences, information gaps, different costs, and other barriers that will make implementation of all these solutions difficult on a global scale. But there's more. Have you thought about all those abandoned coal mines, not active ones, that provide power, but closed ones? Well, many of them continue to emit methane for years. These emissions should be mitigated. Policy and regulation can support this move. Research scholar Meredith Evans says, we studied global policies to promote the capture and use of abandoned mine methane, or AMM as it's known, and we found five key actions that can really help. If you can't own the gas, it's very hard to mitigate it, to, to install equipment that would utilize that gas if you don't own it. We have the ownership rights as the first, the transfer of methane rights as the second. Then having uh, abandoned mine methane as a renewable energy source in, um, in legislation or regulations can be very helpful as an incentive. Another one is uh, royalties. So uh, many countries will charge royalties on the companies that produce uh, natural gas, and they may charge royalties for producing abandoned mine methane or um, methane from a, an operating mine. If those uh, royalties are very high, it's a big disincentive to a project. With the climate changing, building resilience into infrastructure investments becomes more important. Not only are policymakers seeking greener investments, but they're also seeking and must pay for more resilient infrastructure or build resilience in existing infrastructure. In making investment decisions, human behavior must be accounted for. In particular, migration, which changes the infrastructure map. Should there be investment where people live or where governments think people will live in the future? Should governments try to influence these decisions? These are things that each country will need to decide based on the particular social and economic circumstances of its people. Let's hear Professor Michael Oppenheimer on this issue. When you get to the question of how humans will respond to those climate changes, you're talking about quite a different kettle of fish. You're talking about laws of human behavior and our understanding of human behavior, our ability to cite particular laws is nowhere near the way it is in physics. So trying to project what could happen 20, 30, 40 years from today under much different socioeconomic conditions in many cases as people existed today is not easy and we can't do it to any degree of accuracy now. What we can do is start to understand the sensitivities of human beings to the need or possibility 
of migrating under particular situations. So I think at this point, governments need to think ahead about how to make conditions in the likely destination places for migrants better, how to make conditions in the origin places where people are leaving better, so maybe so many of them won't leave. a number of podcasts on infrastructure that connects us physically to other places, such as ships, trucks, or cars, because of their importance for the development of markets and economic progress. In these episodes, we examined how disruptive technology creates opportunities where none existed before, incentives for the adoption of technology, the impact of macroeconomic shocks, including climate shocks on transport, as well as the importance of policy in affecting the adoption of technology and also the distribution of gains. The nature of transport has changed and is changing still for people and for the goods we use. There are disruptors using digital technology and these disruptors have spread across the globe, changing passenger mobility. Access to some finance, whether from global or domestic sources, has been an integral factor supporting the growth of disruptors in developing countries. But another important factor has been adaptation and customization to specific country circumstances. Let us hear from expert Ed Sue on this. And when I met with the manager team, they were telling me the story of how the founders personally went on the streets and recruited drivers away from Uber and signed them onto their platform on the spot. And what they also did was they developed new features that Uber didn't have. They accepted cash payments um, and they also integrated motorbikes onto their platform. Um, Uber, you know, did not. I mean, they had the advantage of where they had their, their app that they were able to move into this new country. But that's also a disadvantage because their app didn't accept cash or have motorbikes. Infrastructure investment, building roads in cities and villages, is an essential ingredient to transport services, whether for passengers or freight. But policy and regulations matter a lot too. Road logistics, trucking services, for example, need a regulatory framework that supports competition and efficiency, allowing entry, reducing red tape. Well-functioning services will support economic activity as well as expert Matthias Dappe tells us. What we look at when we assess the connectivity and the role of transport in connectivity is to the availability of adequate transport infrastructure and competitive transport services. And when I say competitive, I'm referring to the price of the service and the quality of the service. We also look at any other constraints to seamless movement of goods, uh, such as some regulations and policies. It's not just about building to provide the capacity for the traffic that you are estimating will be there in the future, but the infrastructure that you put in place will influence the economic activity and therefore the demand for that infrastructure. An important session revealed what electric cars can do for the energy transition under different sources of energy used for electrification. In most places around the world, even if energy does not decarbonize and even after accounting for the emissions related to electric vehicle production, switching to EVs 
is good for global warming, and policies to encourage this transition can reduce emissions. This is what researcher Florian Knobloch says in this regard. Driving and heating are the two major sources of direct carbon emissions by households. And across the world, passenger road vehicles and household heating generate around a quarter of all emissions from the burning of fossil fuels. So to put it into perspective, passenger cars account for emissions of around 5 gigaton of CO2 per year. This is similar to the entire CO2 emissions of the United States of America, which is the second largest polluter on the globe. On the transition path to electrification, public transport systems are important. They reduce costs associated with congestion. Studying public transport bus systems in Latin America, expert Bianca Alves reminds us. So bus services are usually provided through a private-public partnership, right, a, a PPP. In the majority of cases, there's very little accountability and transparency in the selection process for private contractors. Too often, contracts are set for too long, and in some cases, they're basically perpetual. Incumbents tend to own premium plots of land for the depot, so new entrants are blocked, cannot find affordable land available. Incumbents already have their own fleets, and they're normally diesel, they don't want to invest to change. They also resell their old vehicles, diesel vehicles, down the line and make good money from it. So to increase efficiency, the biggest issue is resolving some of this lack of competition. Some of our guests spoke about the importance of ships in supply chain logistics. Whether it be container ships containing all manner of manufactured items, or bulk trade ships carrying cereals, minerals and other essential products, how the market for shipbuilding, the market for fuels, the efficiency of ports, and the rise and fall of demand for shipping services, the type of market competition that exists, all these factors affect the price of shipping and how fast goods get to us. Climate change also affects these routes and profits. Have a listen to Professor Myrto Calypsidi. We explore the impact of a permanent closure of three important passages, uh, Suez, Panama, and Gibraltar. Now, these passages essentially reduce nautical distances and thus the duration of specific trips. And we find that all of these passages have a substantial impact on world trade uh, and welfare. So for example, closing the Suez Canal permanently would reduce trade by about 3.5% and in some regions substantially more. So in the Middle East, it would reduce trade by almost 25%. So the Northwest Passage is the sea route between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans through the Arctic Ocean. So we run an experiment where we study what would happen if the ice melts and the Northwest Passage is opened up. So this would mean, in practice, a reduction in the travel distance between the Northeast America and the Far East, as well as Northern Europe and the Far East. What about ports? Well, as for road transport, investment in hard infrastructure is needed, but efficient service provision at ports requires a regulatory framework encouraging competition in logistics and delivery services. Efficiency, such as through digitalization of ports and good management. Let's hear expert Martin Humphreys on this. And now, potentially, with a digital system that is appropriate 
the customs officer wouldn't need to leave his office. He can log into the system. He knows in advance what's coming and what's going to be unloaded off that vessel. He can check that the agent has paid the duty and then he can push the button to say that consignment is clear. The shipping sector is an important one in the road to decarbonization of transport. Hydrogen bears promise, but alternative fuels need more development to be economically viable. And there are going to be substantial investments needed, including in physical infrastructure. As we've seen in other sectors, so it's true here, investors weigh the risks and opportunities associated with investing in new technologies and systems and public policy will affect these choices. Some emerging nations have the potential to gain from these developments, as expert Dominic Engler tells us about those countries he studied. These developing countries would benefit from producing zero-carbon bunker fuels for the global shipping sector because it would allow them to take advantage of a unique investment opportunity, a unique investment opportunity that is huge. It is estimated to be more than $1 trillion. And this creates an opportunity for many of these countries to shift from currently being energy importers to becoming energy exporters and to reap several business and development benefits on top of this. Finally, during this series, we highlighted the role of private investment in supporting infrastructure investments and service delivery. At the same time, we discussed the enabling environment, the role of government in setting policies and regulation. A particular type of investment we considered were public-private partnerships, or PPPs. We heard about why they're sought after and what factors affect how they work. Firstly, they're attractive because of the efficiency gains and innovation that can accompany private investment. Such gains may enhance profitability of the enterprise, and when done well, service delivery is also enhanced. Let's hear expert Jeffrey Delman on this. Private sector brings a lot of capacities that government may not have. For example, duty-free. You know, when you walk into an airport and some of them are sort of constrained and uncomfortable. Some of them are these beautiful, massive shopping malls. And it's those shopping mall type airports that bring in a huge amount of additional revenues. And that's what the private sector can bring. But there are a number of other factors, some relevant for the sector in which the investment occurs and others relating the host government. For example, the degree of sunk costs in the sector how easy it is to verify the quality and quantity of service delivery, the form in which the private investor gets paid, whether user fees or taxes or direct transfers from government, and whether the private investor is required to fulfill social obligations for which it is not appropriately compensated. Continuing with Jeff Delman. Um, and going back to my water project example, if I'm uh, if I've built a dam and I'm treating water and I'm delivering it to a utility, so I'm just delivering it to the water utility, the water utility then takes it to the individual consumers. That's a pretty easy relationship. I have a contract with this one big company, they pay my bills, I'm done. More complicated is when you ask the private sector to treat the water and then deliver it to individual households. And you can imagine the difficulty of 
collecting money from individual households, making sure where the leaks are, figuring out what the services are. When it's government, the government individual, the consumer relationship is very different than when a private company comes in. Government capacities to set sector priorities and conduct solid economic and financial analyses of its projects are really important in ensuring project success. Projects will not be sustainable unless due diligence is done before they're undertaken. At the same time, given the long horizon of these investments, all parties involved must work together to deal with and adapt to unforeseen circumstances. Features of the institutional environment have a large impact on how well public-private partnerships work. Professor Stefan Straub mentioned some key features. Have a listen. Uh, first, we're talking about the long-term contract. So two things. If you have better, faster, more efficient contract enforcement, obviously it will be easier to do a PVP. That means rule of law matters, you know, and all these characteristics. On the other hand, uncertainty is bad for PVPs. So political instability, macroeconomic instability, but also disaster risk. Uh, all these things are going to complicate uh, the, the stability of these long-term contracts. And then there are some things that are more ambiguous. So let me group this into like public sector efficiency. So bureaucratic efficiency <clears throat> or even corruption, you know, because on the one hand you would think, well, if there is more bureaucratic efficiency or less corruption, probably you're more efficient at doing PPPs as a public sector. But then think also of the other side of the coin is like, well, if you have a better public sector, more efficient, less corruption, you're also better at running public projects. Governments also turn to private investors when they lack resources to invest. That is, they do not wish to borrow directly on markets or to raise taxes immediately to fund the investment. What they're really doing is changing the time profile over which they or users must pay for the service. Let's hear Professor Stefan Straub on this topic. Yeah, so this is the main main point that you know uh, carries disagreement uh, when, when we discuss PPPs, uh, is the fact that, that government will save on, on resources by investing that. And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding between the financing and the fund, because even though it might be financed and operated by, by the private sector, ultimately the funding is who is going to pay for that piece of infrastructure is going to be either the users through the fees or the taxpayers. Well, that was a lot, I know, but I hope you learned as much as I did. So let me end today by thanking you for listening to the series. All the episodes will be there for you to listen to at your leisure, whether on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just by clicking on our World Bank website, worldbank.org forward slash tell me how. The site contains links to relevant background material for your perusal. It has been a fun journey. Thank you for accompanying me and goodbye.